Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. So the other day, well, before I jump to that, I got to read this little thing and then we'll jump right into the conversation here. The conversation like this and the, and the what? And the one you heard last hour are brought to you in part by MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. So the other day I was uh, on Facebook, which all of us do, from and uh, check to see what's happening on Facebook. And a friend uh, who has been a guest on the show numerous times, Dr. Lester Spence uh, from Johns Hopkins University, uh, posted this study. Freedom to Thrive, Reimagining Safety and Security in Our Communities. Uh, that was produced by a number of organizations uh, around this country. And uh, one of those organizations is the Center for Popular Democracy, Law for Black Lives, and Black Youth Project 100 uh, were, were all part of this. And they worked with organizations around the country, two of whom are Baltimore organizations, CASA, CASA Maryland, who's obviously they've been a guest on the show many times, and Communities United as well been guests on the show many times, but organizations across America. And they looked at cities, Atlanta, Baltimore, Chicago, Contra Costa County, Detroit, Houston, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, New York City, Oakland, Orlando, and St. Louis, uh, and St. Louis County. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that struck me about this report um, and that really has been striking me a lot in my kind of travels around the country and the work, the, the conference we just did in, in, that I helped host in Hartford, is that Hartford, Connecticut, is that the issues are not that different no matter where we are. People feel so isolated all the time uh, in this country. We feel isolated if you live in Baltimore that, uh, that, that you're in this battle alone uh, for a more just society. Uh, and then you start meeting people around the country and you realize in St. Louis people are organizing and doing the same things. They're facing the same things. In Atlanta, they're facing the same things. In New York City, they're facing the same things. Wherever you go. Uh, and this report kind of pulled that together in many ways. Uh, talked about the ways... Uh, and the amount of money being spent on uh, on police spending and on corrections uh, and on security, uh, the percentages of the budgets are not too dissimilar, whether you're talking about Baltimore, Chicago, or L.A. or Minneapolis. They're very, very similar. Uh, and some cities even greater, like Oakland. And the situations around racism and housing are also very similar. So we are gathering a conversation about that today. What does that tell us? What does it tell us about where we're going? What does it tell us about the organizing that has to be done to change what we see? Uh, and we are here with uh, Jennifer Epps Addison, who is president and co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy that helped produce this report. Jennifer, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really an important report. Uh, and um, we also have with us two members of two of the organizations from Maryland that were part of this report uh, in, in the studio. Nabiha Arifa Aziz is with us. She's members of, a member of community, a community organizer at Communities United. And we met actually at the Climate March uh, when, uh, I'll just take this in the side because I think it's important to say, um, that at the Climate March, one of the things that really struck me about our Baltimore contingent, that it was led by working class Black folks from Baltimore City, uh, which was unique and different. Uh, and Communities United was out there in front along with working families, and that's where Nabiha and I met. Good to have you in the house. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be here. And we're also joined by Elizabeth Alex, uh, who's been on the show numerous times. She's regional director for Casa Baltimore. And Elizabeth, welcome back. Thanks so much, Mark. Good to be here. Uh, always good to have you on the air with us. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at steinershow.org by email. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner, but do join us, 410-319-8888. So, so Jennifer, take us first of all to the genesis of this report uh, and, and why the organizations came together to produce it, what you were after, and what, 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 what started this. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I would first say that this report is really predicated on the incredible work of black and brown women across the country, particularly in the leaders of Black Lives Matter, the leaders of BYP 100, the leaders of Law for Black Lives. Um, a couple years ago now, 
the Movement for Black Lives released a, a policy platform, a revolutionary policy platform, and one of the tenements in it was this concept called Invest Divest. And, you know, they really, at the time, coined this term to help us understand the misaligned spending priorities of cities and communities across the country when it relates to community safety and criminal justice. What we realized through the research of this report is that over the last 30 years, both on the national and local levels, governments have drastically increased their spending on criminalization, policing, and mass mass incarceration, while at the same time cutting basic investments in things like infrastructure and social safety net programs. And so our affiliates at the Center for Popular Democracy, we have 48 affiliates in 32 states across the country, including Casa de Maryland, and Communities United really began to, to see that the issues and the challenges that they were facing in their local communities weren't just about those local communities, but instead were reflective of a national trend. So we really commissioned this report under the idea that we wanted to help those local groups who are leading this work have something that they could bring in with them to city council offices, have something that they can take with them to police commissions and the mayor to help communities understand how we got in the position that we're in currently today. And that position, as you said, is that in the cities that we uh, analyze, and folks should know that these are diverse geographic cities from the Midwest to the South to the East to the West Coast, but the situation and what we found is, is you know, very uniform across all of them, meaning these cities spend on average about a third of their general purpose revenue on policing. Um, and we were very conservative to only challenge um, and look at policing, but if we were to look at the other expenditures in criminalization from, you know, city attorney's offices, district attorneys, um, you know, probation, parole, monitoring, supervision, suppression, we would find that number to be much higher. Mm -hmm. Um, But these cities are spending about a third of their general purpose revenue on policing, and yet at the same time, we're seeing things like, you know, in Baltimore, for example, um, while you spend about 26% of the GPR and policing, you only spend about 0.6% on human services, which includes homeless services, housing, and Head Start. So, you know, I think you don't have to go far to imagine that if, you know, you're spending this amount of money on policing, you're not actually policing, you know, true crime. What you're doing is criminalizing poverty, criminalizing mental health issues, criminalizing homelessness. And that's what we hope to stop so that communities really do have the freedom to thrive. And I'm curious that when you, I guess I, my, my assumption is, and I'm probably a pretty good assumption that, that both uh, Elizabeth and, and Aviha b- both read this report and went through it. So what were your first reactions, especially looking at, as I said earlier, I think that, and I'm going to come back to everything that Jennifer just said and kind of parse through some of this, talk about what this means strategically in terms of movement building and where this might take us. But I'm curious what your reactions were when you – what I said to you in the green room, maybe here was this you – know, again, this, again, this sense of isolation that people have. But our struggles are not isolated. They really are connected. Yeah. So, I mean, every city has its unique qualities and is very different in um, its, you know, its its roots. Right. But I've had the pleasure of working at two of the organizations that are listed in this report. What was the one in St. Louis you Um, worked in? More Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment. um, And. I came to Baltimore because I felt like it was a city that I could quickly get acclimated to because of some of the similarities between the two cities. Um, and then I'm originally from uh, Virginia. And I mean, these are things that we know exist. And sometimes you do think that you're, you know, the problems that you have are, are in a bubble and you're the only one who's suffering from these things. But it's just not the case across the country. Um, we have a history of investing in things that destroy um, low income black and brown communities um, and destroy black families, black and brown families. Um, and. You know, we know this in our in our isolated groups, and now this report reveals to us that it's not something that's just happening at home. It's happening everywhere, and we have to put an end to it. Elizabeth? So I think this came to a head particularly uh, right after the death of Freddie Gray in 2015, right? And as we began to, to organize through the Campaign for Justice, Safety, and Jobs, we really took a hard look at how our cities financial priorities were reflecting or not reflecting 
the people's priorities. And this is where this first started to come to light, that we were spending a lot of money on a police department that was clearly, at that time, part of the problem and not part of the solution in a lot of ways. And at the same time, our after-school programs and our schools themselves were really struggling to serve our children and provide all the necessary resources. And so I think, I mean, folks remember at that time, a lot of intense scrutiny began to happen uh, among the police budget and also among the, the entire city budget. Uh, we were able to win one-time funding at that time for a bunch of new after-school programs under Mayor Rawlings-Blake. And then for the last two years, uh, somehow that funding that is clearly so critical to the well-being of young people in our city and a critical anti-violence measure, uh, we've had to fight for every June. You know, you guys remember just a month or so ago, we had, we packed the entire war memorial, right, full of young people pushing right. and pushing on the city council to re... And, and that's not even to move ahead, right? That was just to get us back to the status quo from the la- year before so that critical after-school programs wouldn't be cut. Earlier this, earlier this year, we had another major organizing effort just to ensure that kids would be able to ride the bus home after after-school programs. And we have one of these after-school programs, right? And our kids were saying, I'm sorry, I have to leave an hour early because my S-Pass is going to expire. Now, obviously, those have been some good local organizing victories. We've won. We've had strong support from some of our new city council members. But these are not fights that we should be having to extend this much energy into every single year. These should be obvious priorities for our city leaders. So, there's so many places I want to go with this conversation. and I want to get to the police budgets. I also want to talk about what the alternative is and how we get there. And, like, as programs we've had this week about the shooting and murder rates that are happening in Baltimore and other cities, how you talk about this larger picture when people are feeling so unsafe and what we do about that. But let me start here, though. One of the things that was really glaring to me in this report, I don't know, this popped out in my head, and I think it's really important for us to wrestle with it. And, Jennifer, let me throw this quote at you, then we can all talk about it. Um, It was a quote, I think, in the earlier part of the report. It said, Atlanta, a city where more than 50% of the residents are black, was ranked the second most unequal city in the United States in 2016. 80% of black children in Atlanta live in communities with concentrated poverty compared to 6% of white children. Now, you look at Atlanta, people think of Atlanta as a black city, mm-hmm. as a city that where they've had a, a black political leadership, with a city where there has been growth in the black capital sector. Yet, you, we can read that quote. So, when you, so there's some contradictions here. Um, but also some realities about America. So wh- what does that say in the context of all this to you, Jennifer? Yes. I, so there are a couple of things. First of all, I want to say that, to me, one of the most revolutionary things about this report is that for the last several decades, our analysis around urban communities, black and brown communities, has been that they received too little investment, right? We're not investing in the social infrastructure and human capital in those communities. What this report really shows is that actually there's extreme and heavy investment in black and brown communities, but the majority of it is going to policing, suppressing, and criminalizing them. And so when we talk about this freedom freedom to thrive, we all have to sort of get at what is the root goal here. And I would, you know, I appreciate that you brought up victims of crime and folks who are experiencing a lack of safety, um, because the reality, you know, the thing is, is that if if the goal of the system of mass incarceration is to make communities more safe, then by all objective standards, we would have to say that that goal has failed, that that strategy has failed. Instead, what we see is that communities are are no more safe for these extreme forms of policing. And instead, what happens is that police, there begins to be an erosion of trust within communities that are overly heavily policed and that police, um, are begun to see be seen as the problem and not part of the community's fabric of solutions. And so, you know, this report is really calling for a reimagining of public safety and security. And I would start at, a both, at the most basic level, and I heard this from an activist in Madison, Wisconsin, after an unarmed death of a young black man, um, who said, we want the same kind of policing that most white folks get, right? And by and large, most white communities are certainly Um, most affluent communities have a much different relationship to the police. And it's not simply 
um, you know, that they that the police help them when they when they're called. But they are not monitored and surveilled, right? They can walk down the street freely and have a real, true American freedom that we're all supposed to be born with. Uh, when they have a mental health crisis, those affluence communities would never for a second consider that the police should be a first responder when there's a mental health problem. They want a mental health professional to be responding in that situation. And as we've seen, as the opioid epidemic has arisen across the country, largely in rural and white communities, we see white folks across the country and white politicians especially calling for a different way to deal with drug treatment um, than they have been dealing with many black and brown communities for the last several decades, right? They're no longer calling for mass incarceration for drug uh, addiction, but instead related to this new crisis that's harming their communities, they're calling for compassionate care and health care as a solution to drug addiction. And so, you know, for us, we want to see the investments that are going to policing poverty, mental illness, and drug addiction. We want to see those transformed into investments at the root causes, education, transit, housing, economic opportunity. These are the things that transition communities from communities that are living on the brink to communities that are truly safely and secure and that are thriving. Do you all want to add to that? Elizabeth, go ahead. I think, well, I just want to lift up one particular piece, and this isn't going to be clear in one of in either budget, the youth, youth-related budget or the police budget. But, you know, we have a very effective anti-violence program right now in Baltimore called Safe Streets. It's a program that, again, was set for expansion from four neighborhoods to 12 neighborhoods, but last year was cut back down to two neighborhoods. And the, and the city council, again, had to do creative mechanism just to get back to the status quo. And this program is funded out of the health department, right? We have an extremely progressive leadership in the health department who is recognizing that we have to both go back, uh, you know, swim upstream, is the way Dr. Wen likes to talk about it, right? That we need to be uh, working with our children as young as possible and working in our neighborhoods before violence happens. But we also need to respond when violence does happen because it is, in fact, a public health issue that's infecting every neighborhood of our city. Um, but again, like we know what works. We know that programs like Safe Streets, that funding after school programs, that providing uh, transportation to young people to get to programs after school, these are things that work, that keep our young people safer and keep our entire city safer. Uh, and yet they're battles that we have to have every year. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a shame that we have to keep doing this every year. I'm, I'm pleased that some of our new city council people are really taking on this fight and lifting up this issue, but we have a lot of work to be done. I mean, I just, just to make those numbers really clear, and the report um, lifts up that from 2011 to 2014, the city of Baltimore paid out um, $11 million in legal fees and settlements over police brutality. Right. And so when you hear folks saying we have a program that's initiated, that's community-owned, that is working to make our streets safer, and we have to fight tooth and nail just to stay at the status quo, meanwhile, the city is paying out, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars to settle police brutality cases. Again, you have to say, where are our priorities here? What, what you know, if, if budgets are moral documents, then one would have to say that in the 12 cities and communities that were analyzed in this report, there is a massive moral failing. Yeah, I mean, so again, with, with the numbers, the fact that in Baltimore City, public schools get 55 cents to the dollar um, of, of every dollar that's being spent on policing. That is telling our children that the city values uh, incarcerating their family members, their parents, their uncles, and their mothers is, is a bigger priority than making sure they get a quality education so that they can come back and contribute something positive to their community. Uh, the Office of Employment Development, less than a penny for every dollar that goes to policing when we live in a city that is screaming and shouting, saying we need jobs. So this is not a community that's lazy, that won't work, that, that can't work. They're, the, the city is shouting that they need jobs. They need economic stability. 
but they in in areas like central west baltimore you know even the elected officials who uh vote against the the minimum wage like leon pinkett are telling the community and telling these children that their parents and their families don't deserve the right or the freedom to thrive you don't deserve to make a living wage so that you can sustain your family so that when we're sending these types of messages to our children you can't go back after the fact and say oh my gosh the crime Oh, my God, look at these test scores. You're not investing in the future of the youth. So you can't go back and criticize the outcomes that this system is creating. Um, so, uh, you know, there was mention of the, the youth forum, the Youth Rising Summit, where, you know, youth from all over the city came to talk to their elected officials to give testimony on why they needed to fund community schools, why they needed to fund out of school time children. And so um, Communities United, um, through YouthWorks, um, we are actually, we have four YouthWorks students and two students who uh, we've hired directly who are working with us this summer going through a youth organizer training. And one of the projects that they're working on is creating a community assets map in the city of Upton. And um, Jules Howie Dunham, uh, who's the secretary of the Marble Hill Community Association and the co-chair of development for the Upton Planning Committee, has been really great in helping the students but the students are deciding what are the things in the community that are assets what are the things in the community that make them feel safe what are the places that are friendly and accepting to youth and give youth a place to go those are the things that we need to be investing in and if 13 14 15 16 year olds can figure this out it is unacceptable that our elected officials who are adults who grew up in this community can't get it right so I, I do want to kind of explore the way what, what, what this report says in terms of where we go. Because every city you look at, I mean, the report talks about Chicago that paid out $52 million in police misconduct uh, issues and $52 million. I mean, granted, Chicago is a much larger, larger city than Baltimore. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible amount of money. Uh, by the way, I don't, people have not seen it yet. I mean, there's been we'll juxtaposed these two things. I went to a community meeting the, uh, that you spoke at, mm-hmm. Nabiha, at Forest Park uh, in Baltimore. Well, there were two black officers there who really did care about the community and both lived in the community. Then we saw a video released today that was taken from a police camera, a a body camera, showing an officer that didn't even think about he was being taped as he was doing it, putting drugs in a can in an alley, saying they found these capsules, busted this kid. He's been in jail for six months for drugs that weren't even his. So the juxtaposition of these realities. So the question is, how movements respond to this? What, what, what is being, how you respond to this to build a different way mm-hmm. of living in our society? Not allowing this to continue. What do these movements say? How do they become a political force that actually changes what this report is indicating and showing these movements around the country and what they're doing? These movements are all connected in many ways. Take a short break and come back and wrestle with that with our three guests. And you all are 410-319-8888. Clarence, you're the first caller up. We're going to get to your call and the other calls coming in at 410-319-8888. Stay with us. Don't go away. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. We're talking about the report that came out, put out by three organizations, one of those being the Center for Popular Democracy, called Freedom to Thrive, about cities across America, how we've been spending our money historically uh, on police and and uh, and disinvesting in our communities uh, and investing in, in, in police instead, what that means. But these are movements people focused on, uh, the report focused on as well, from around the country. So what do we do about it? Jennifer Epps Addison is with us. She is president and co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy. Two organizers from the state of Maryland. Baltimore was one of those places that were reported on. Uh, Nabiha Arifa Aziz is with us. She is a community organizer with Communities United. Uh, and Elizabeth Alex, who is regional director of Casa Baltimore. And you all are 410-319-8888. Before we get to Clarence, our first caller up, and Clarence is going to come right to your call, let's talk a bit about what I said before we went to break. And... and um, about what does it say about what the what is the political context of where we go from here? How does that change? What are the, what are movements doing, and what does it mean to kind of change political power to change this dynamic? And how does that happen? Let's take an overview first, Jennifer. How do you see that happening? 
So I think there are a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, as you all see, many of the cities on the list that we analyze are cities that see themselves at the center leading the resistance, right? In this moment, they see themselves as progressive cities. Uh, you know, there are some pretty strong similarities. Many of them are majority people of color cities. Many of them, their city councils are majority people of color or at least half people of color. And many of them, actually all of them, um, the city councils uh, are, are what we call liberal or lean Democrat. And so, you know, we see oftentimes people fighting and engaged in this fight who talk about the Republicans or talk about the state if they're situated in states that have Republican rule as being the problem here. But what we realized through this report is that cities actually make these uh, conditions worse with every single budget they pass. And so it means that we need a, a ground-up localized strategy um, within this national context. And so we see that happening across the country. We see citizens coming together to, to form police oversight boards. We see uh, people, you know, most recently in Philadelphia running uh, for district attorneys on a, on a community-controlled safety platform. Um, that's really exciting to see. Um, we see across the country uh, police uh, officers being trained in implicit bias and a whole host of other de-escalation tactics. Um, those things are all good steps. But the reality is, is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you continue to invest more and more money every single year, we see an increase in police budgets in most of these cities. And if you continue to invest more and more money in policing, you're going to get higher levels of criminalization. But it doesn't follow that you will actually get more safety and security in communities. And so the next sort of wave, the way we have to turn the corner, is we have to get residents and citizens involved in participatory budgeting, where they actually have a say in the prioritization of spending. And I guarantee you that when you line folks up in a room and you give them the opportunity to really imagine community safety outside of just policing, that the things that are lifted up in this report, like affordable housing and transit access and health care, those things will come to the forefront. I bet you any money that in Baltimore, if you ask folks, would you like more money going to the creation of jobs and the creation of good paying family supporting jobs or continuing to police folks for loitering and, you know, the other zero tolerance policies that permeate your police department, folks are going to say we want those opportunities to thrive, not the forced suppression that we're currently receiving. Elizabeth, if go I ahead. My, Elizabeth yeah, Alex, yeah. You knew I was dying to talk. Um, so I think <laughs> we're in a really critical moment in our city right now, right? We, we're we under consent decree, and we're under con perhaps in the last consent decree for the foreseeable future, uh, sort of against against the will of the current DOJ, uh, but with at least on paper support from our city government. And so I think there's a huge opportunity, and this has been a lot of the work uh, that we've been really pushing for the last several months, of maximizing city resident city resident participation in that process at every single stage. You know, we're pushing hard right now. The city and the DOJ are deciding who's going to be who are the finalists to be the monitor of that consent decree. And we need a real a monitor who's going to listen to the people of Baltimore, who's going to do this, this deep work to figure out that oh, the reason you know we have bad policing and over budgeted policing that's because we're spending all this money on. Uh, lawsuits and police overtime, and if we just had the right number of jobs, police doing the jobs the right way, and then augmented that with all of these other upstream programs around uh, youth youth funding and affordable housing and and jobs and transportation, this is how we get this is our roadmap. Uh, but I think it's critical that our our residents are participating. Otherwise, this turns into another bureaucratic process behind closed doors. It's up to the people of Baltimore to make sure that that's not the case, that we are there present at every single moment. And then uh, today is the first the first meeting of our community oversight task force, right, where our citizens of Baltimore actually have that opportunity to start making some recommendations. What are some of these policy changes that need to happen within the police department to make policing work so that it doesn't have to be so expensive so that we can put uh, the money where it should be in, in programs that work. What time and where is that happening, just for our listeners who are listening right now? 
Sorry? What time and where is that happening? Oh, sorry. Five to seven at the Office of Civil and Wage Enforcement. Civil Rights and Wage Enforcement on Redwood Street. I believe it's 7 Redwood Street. I'll look it up in the meantime. That's cool. <laughs> and so before we hit the phones here, and Nabiha, do you want to leap in? Um, yes. I mean, I think that in our organizing, the most important thing for us to realize is that there is no savior that's going to come to rescue us and, and have solutions. Um, Jennifer made a really good point in that a lot of the city councils in these cities, they are already, you know, predominantly um, black uh, people in leadership. So it's not a, it's not the case where, you know, the people who are leading just aren't our people necessarily. That The point is that even when we put people into office, we still have to hold them accountable. So we have to come up with our own solutions to our, our problems because if we rely on the systems that created these problems to fix it for us, we're just going to continue to go around in the same cycle. So how are we organizing? Where, how are we create, setting um, and determining what our priorities are? And how are we holding elected officials accountable? How are we creating systems for ourselves and making sure that that we are implementing things that uh, uh, how are we implementing programs that we govern that we're in control of that work directly for our community and are operated by members of our community I think that's the major solution to a lot of these problems is we just can't wait for somebody else to do it for us if we elect people we have to hold them accountable and sometimes we can't look at legislative um, solutions we have to look at community based grassroots solutions as well so your thoughts and ideas, folks, at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. You can also uh, send us an email to talkatsteinershow.org. Log on to our Facebook pages. But 410-319-8888. Clarence, you're on the air. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Mark. Um, before I say anything, um, you young folks, um, it, it's it's great to hear that kind of passion. Your your your, your passion is palatable. I mean, I can, I can feel it coming through, and I just want to... Say, I, I admire you for that. <laughs> you know, uh, Mark, uh, young folks. Um, <laughs> one, understand. I got lost there, Mark. I'm sorry. That's all right, man. Um, <laughs> um, understand that there is a nexus between corporate America and the politicians. Um, the investment and the cities that you are talking about are what I think Bill Moyers is a good person to listen to on this subject, are sacrifice zones. The deinvestment by corporate America and the nexus between the, our governmental structure and the deinvestment is, is there. Um, you have to choose your allies well from whatever party or whatever political affiliation you have. You have to choose them well. And also understand that poverty is a political choice. Never listen to anybody that poverty will always exist. Poverty is a political choice. Choose your allies well and make it a fight, um, not based on any political ideology. Make it a generational fight between your generation. My generation has mucked this thing up. So, you know, ignore them. I mean, Mark, I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's just what I was feeling at the moment when I'm listening to these guys, man. Thank you, Mark. I'm sorry. That's right, Clarence. That's cool. Don't worry about that. Yeah, so Clarence, I think that you made an excellent point, and I, I completely agree with you. Um, so... Poverty in some communities, although it's detrimental to them, it creates wealth in other communities. And so as we're looking at these processes and saying that, you know, it's crazy that we know this doesn't work and we keep repeating the same cycle. Well, yeah, people are completing these uh, same cycles because it's profitable. It's beneficial to other communities. And that's why we have to look at solutions that we control and look at how we can cure some of these problems that have been imposed on us. Right. Um, um, because when they are, you know, continuing to incarcerate 
um, our community. It's because other, uh, you know, corporate entities are getting rich off of our incarceration. Um, when they're not educating our students, it's because they're trying to continue to perpetuate that system of mass incarceration so that they can continue to have a free labor force. Um, so it's it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not insanity. It's it's profitable for people, and we have to realize that we have to take our hands out of other people's pockets and make sure we're supporting the things that are going to profit us. Yeah, I'm really glad that folks brought up this tie to corporations because it's actually the side of policing and mass incarceration that people rarely talk about. Right. And I think it's important to understand that the the system of mass incarceration is absolutely a capitalistic economic system. And so we have folks um, that are making trillions of dollars, right, off of this system. In fact, when number 45, when the president uh, was inaugurated into office, uh, the stock of the largest private prison company in the entire country skyrocketed, right, because people knew that the progress that had been made under the Obama administration getting rid of these bad actors who are profiting off of people's pain was about to be reversed. And so Center for Popular Democracy actually has a website called corporatebackersofhate.org. Again, corporatebackersofhate.org. It looks at the nine companies who stand to profit the most off of this administration's hateful policies, including the folks who are uh, clamoring for new detention center contracts, folks who would like to profit off of building a wall between us and Mexico, and, of course, the folks who are profiting off of this private correction system. Uh, so that's one place you can go to actually send letters directly to the board of directors of these companies, telling them to divest from profiting off of criminalization. And the other thing that folks should know is that the companies you access on a daily basis, Victoria's Secret, Whole Foods, Starbucks, these companies are set up to have a massive prison labor force um, in which, you know, the same companies who won't even hire and who have been accused of having discrimi- discriminatory hiring practices against people of color in our neighborhoods and communities will then turn around and hire those same folks when they are incarcerated. And, you know, we're sort of clearly saying that you should not have to go to jail to get a job with Starbucks or Victoria's Secret or Whole Foods or any of the other companies that are profiting. I think those folks owe some reparations to our communities for their use of this labor and for the impact and harm it has on our people. Before we move on, I, I want to kind of, people have been calling in asking again about the meeting that uh, Elizabeth Alex talked about. So, uh, and Elizabeth texted it to me, I mean, emailed it to me. The meeting of the city of Baltimore consent decree is happening tonight, July 19th, from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Office of Civil Rights and Wage Enforcement. That's at 7 East Redwood Street, 7 East Redwood Street, 9th floor of the boardroom, 7th East Redwood Street, 9th floor. Uh, Pardon me, tonight from 5 to 7 p.m. So that's where it will be taking place. So uh, we'll also post that on our website so you all can have that. So uh, I'll try to announce it again before we conclude the conversation today. 410-319-8888. Tyrone, you're on the air. Welcome. (coughs) Pardon me. Yes, how's it going? Good morning, Tyrone. Yeah, first of all, I just wanted to uh, note that the... uh uh, the mass incarceration is always being used, or, or incarceration period, is always being used as a means of social control to control the masses of uh, people of color, primarily black people. That's why the laws were put, I mean, the loophole was put in the 13th Amendment, which frees the slaves in the first place. The loophole which uh, allows you to be a slave as punishment for a crime. I'm sure your panel knows about that. I'm glad they do, and I hope they uh, fight on in this issue. Um, as far as what you all are talking about, I'm the president of an organization that's uh, trying to solve a lot of those issues. At the same time, we have an initiative that we put before the city that will create uh, jobs, uh, uh, revitalize the housing, at minimum cost to the taxpayer. And uh, our website is Baltimore the number four homes.com. Baltimore the number four homes.com. We're going to have a rally on August the, the, uh, the uh, 12th, 2017, at the War Memorial Plaza in reference to this. And then it's called the Homes Awareness Rally. Our, our organization is called Homes. It's uh, H-O-M-E-S, Homeownership, Opportunity, and Mentorship for Economic Success. And I uh, hope to see you all at that rally on August the 12th, 2017. 
Tyrone, I appreciate the call and uh, and, and and good luck with that, and, and we'll want to hear more about that. So I, I um, so I was thinking about what <clears throat> last callers have said, and what we've been saying here, and I'm I'm curious about where we think the political strategy is here about how this changes. I mean, um, I mean, I think as you said, Jennifer, the 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 cities you focused in on are democratically controlled cities. I mean, controlled by dem- people in the Democratic Party. That many of the council people and leadership of those cities are people of color. Uh, that disinvestment still takes place, and there's a lot of well. Let's take right now what's going on in a number of cities. Whether you look at Chicago or Baltimore, let's take these two examples, where there are, where violence is really um, out of this is really out of control. Uh, people are terrified in communities in the city, but there are also communities that have been completely disin- disinvested in disinvested in, uh, where houses or infrastructure is crumbling, transportation is, is not available, where people are completely isolated in, in, their, in their lives and cut off from the rest of the city in many ways. Um, and this is just the problem is actually growing um, and not getting better. So the question is, how do you organize, A, not just political resistance, but the real change to kind of, kind of change the nature of how how cities spend their money, where they spend their money, um, and where we invest, and what that investment means to actually put people to work, to actually change communities, change the nature of community. And that's what we're talking about here, um, and how you get to that place. Given the, we're talking about decades of disinvestment that have now reached a a a, a, a juncture where where we're in a crisis for thousands of people. If you take a city like Baltimore, I'd say a plurality or even perhaps a majority, depending on how you look at those numbers. I've not seen anybody do a real statistical analysis yet of people in the city and cities like this um, are living at or near poverty in isolation from the rest of the world. So where do we go? What does that movement look like to you all? Jennifer? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that many of the folks who represent our communities on city councils or mayor, even our district attorneys, Oftentimes, these folks are elected with, you know, 8, 10, 12% voter turnout for their eligible voters in their ward. That's so right. In a place like my hometown of Milwaukee, where a ward might be 80,000 uh, people, you've got, you know, eight to 10,000 people who are voting for that city council member, right? So I think the, the first thing that we have to do is we have to understand that when, you know, that every election matters. And that, you know, it's not just federal elections that we need to put a hard push to empower our communities to participate in. But we really need to bring this down to the local level and create a sense of ownership over these institutions and structures that govern our lives. But in order to do that, we need candidates. And what, you know, this report illuminates for us is it's not enough to just be black, right? Putting another black face on a city council does not lead to freedom for our communities. And so what we really need are bold, progressive, innovative black folks who are willing to challenge the status quo um, to, to build a better community and to, and to have a greater sense of equity uh, within our cities. And so, you know, we support, Center for Popular Democracy supports that in two ways. One is uh, we have a network called Local Progress, which is a network of 500 progressive local elected officials across the country. If you're an elected official and you'd like support in advancing progressive policies, you should join Local Progress and be a part of the solution. The second way that we do it is working with our affiliates, like CASA, like Communities United, on civic engagement programs. And so, you know, my dream is that this year, in 2017, 2018, we're going to see hundreds of city council seats in mayoral races all across the country. My dream is that we could actually run slates, you know, cross-city, cross-state, cross-national slates of progressive candidates on this very issue, um, on freedom to thrive, on divesting from failed structures of mass incarceration and investing in human capital and communities. And I think if we were able to do that and provide a real infrastructure and a backbone for progressive candidates, for, for moms, for school teachers, for nurses to, to show up and run for office, we would see an incredibly different set of priorities coming out of local government, and we would see much stronger, much healthier, much better connected communities two years from now than we see today. 
So how do you all think about that, Elizabeth? I mean, we open the phones, and we go, to, and then we we'll open the phones. Yeah, I mean, in in, in twenty sixteen, I know Community United and Casa and other groups did a ton of work. Remember, this was the first year where our ex felons were able to register and vote right. with same day voter right. registration and early voting. You know, and and I know our our friends from No Boundaries doubled the number of people voting in their neighborhood. Casa registered over a thousand eighteen and nineteen year olds from high schools and literally drove them to vote. Uh, for early voting, there's, there's really amazing work happening in the city, but it takes uh, support from people like CPD, and it takes it's going to take time. It takes people to get engaged, not just once, but over and over and over again, because it's not uh, like we're seeing right now, right? We did a lot of work. We got a really amazing progressive council elected, and now what's happening? We're debating mandatory minimums on gun possession again. You know, this is we have to stay present. We have to hold our elected officials accountable all of them, uh, the people that we voted for and the people that we didn't, because uh, it's one thing to get elected, it's another one to stay progressive throughout the, the, the tenure of your term. Nabiha? Yeah, um, so you brought me a little bit closer to, to my right. thoughts, and that is that we have to regroup and we really have to nurture our youth. So in the, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, like our young people are the ones who are going to be taking the lead. So supporting things like the funding of community schools. Um, so Communities United, we have been um, doing a school walk where we walk uh, children to school in two Central West Baltimore schools, um, William Pender Hughes Elementary and Gilmore elementary um, to bring awareness around increased funding uh, to public community schools um, and just public schools in general. Um, And so this summer, we actually are planning to have two black parties to launch that initiative back for the new school year um, and also to expand. Um, So we want to increase to doing two walks um, and increase from two schools to eight schools, four different um, schools in each uh, neighborhood. Um, So we're going to be having a black party on uh, Sunday, August 27th um, in Sandtown, and that'll be serving the school communities for William Penderhughes, Gilmore Elementary, New Song Academy, um, and Harlem Park. And then we're also going to do a black party on September 17th, serving um, in Upton, serving the historic Samuel Coolidge Taylor, um, Utah Marshburn Elementary School, Booker T. Middle School, and Furman L. Templeton. Um, and so a lot of times when we're talking about our youth, people want to say, oh, well, the problem starts at home and, and, you know, the parents need to do their jobs. And the reality is that a lot of students may not have a parent um, uh, or an, an, uh, a capable parent at home, and that's not the child's fault. Um, so the point of our walks, um, in addition to increasing awareness um, of the funding of, of public uh, community schools, is also to bring back that knowledge of the village, right? So just because you're not a parent doesn't mean you can't support one of the youth in the neighborhood. If you sit on your stoop and you watch the children that are walk, running around in your, your neighborhood or your block, then you're a part of that, that parent system for that child is where as well um, so we're really excited we are actually partnering with uh, Baltimore City Public Schools Office of Engagement to reach families as part of their community literacy program um, so we hope people will come out to support this and become a system for these youth um, there'll be interactive learning stations for early learners book giveaways workshops for parents and families um, and homeschool connections um, the great things about community schools is they they allow these students to benefit both from the resources that the schools have and the resources that the communities have. If we can put all of we ha- everything that we have into our youth and allow them to become the leaders that they're destined to be in the future, in the next you know, in the next decade or next two decades, we can really see a change that comes from the roots um, and is actually. Uh, nurturing our community and bringing about the changes that we want to see. Let's try to get a call in here before the end of the hour. At least if we can get a couple in. 410-319-8888. Kamala, you're on the air. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Good morning. Um, I just had a brief comment. Um, a, a lot of the problems that we are discussing, um, they usually come through the avenues of the Democratic and Republican Party. So when we just talk about solutions, um, one of the solutions would be to create our own electoral institution with the working class platform um, and combined with all the great work that everybody else is doing, um, if we combine that work with a challenge um, for power, um, it would create
create that democratic space to give us, you know, uh, more more space to do a lot of the things that we need to do. And um, and the Ujima People's Progress Party is trying to do just that. And we would love to hear from um, you know, guys um, at uppmerlin.org, four four three eight two six nine six five four. I just want to applaud everyone for all the good work you're doing. And um, you guys have a great day. Kamala, thank you so much. And let's get another call in here before we wrap up. Uh, Bubby, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, sir. Thank you much for taking my call. Morning, Bubby. Great conversation. Let me just say, as a lifelong resident of Fantown, Winchester, I agree with your parents when they talk about how the politicians, mm-hmm. the African-American politicians, have let the, the 17th district down. Now, you must understand, we have the most powerful Democratic elected politician who live, who say they live, in the 41st legislative district with the 17th zone, which is Fantown, Winchester, representative. Elijah Cummings, Mosby, Nick, and his wife live in zone 17. We talk about Pew, who represented it for 20 years. My question and my solution is that we need to look at things different. We need economic development in Sandtown, quick, fast, and a hurry. Remember, when they were pushed to ride, they ride. And now there have been no investment put back in that community. Everybody collected money off Freddie Gray's death, but nothing went back to Sandtown. Thank you much for hand pump, listening to me. You will hear from me in the future. Thank you, Bobby. Good to hear from you. And I, first of all, I'll say as, as we wrap up here, that first of all, I want to thank uh, the Center for Popular Democracy and other partner groups for putting this report out, Freedom to Thrive, Reimagining Safety and Security in Our Communities, which we will link to at sanishu.org. But you can also see it at populardemocracy.app.box.com slash freedom to thrive. But we'll link to that at steinershow.org when we put this podcast up today. Um, and uh, Jennifer, uh, excuse me, Jennifer Epps Addison, president and co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for the work that you're doing and putting this report out. It's really important stuff. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Alex, always great to have you on the air with us, regional director of CASA Baltimore. Thank you so much again for participating with us today. Thanks, and for the work Mark. you do, and Abiha Aziz, a community organizer for Communities United, great to have you in the house. Uh, great to have met you on the march, and glad you were here doing the work you're doing. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on uh, before your final show. <laughs> and it's good to have you all. Thank you all for calling in and writing in and making the show what it is. Uh, the Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producers, Amani Spencer, our associate producers, Calvin Perry, our editing producers, Ali Post, our engineers, Andrea Melton, our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org, the podcast of Mark Steiner Show, and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>